Island, you are tuned to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Open Book, cover to cover, coming up next. Welcome to Open Book, cover to cover for Friday. My name is Eric Klein. I'm your host for today's Open Book. And today we'll be talking about comic books and censorship. We have a guest. His name is Charles Brownstein. He's the executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Hello, Charles. Hey, how are you, Eric? Doing good. And um, so for our listeners who aren't familiar... With the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which I imagine are many of them, uh, what, what do you guys do? The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund was established in 1986 with response to, in response to the need for comic book retailers, artists, and publishers to have a line of defense to stand up for their First Amendment rights. And over the last 20 years, we've done a lot of work to defend retailers who are facing charges of obscenity or harmful to minors uh, distribution um, and uh, prevent them from going to jail. We do a lot of education work on behalf of the uh, comics field as far as First Amendment rights, and we do a lot of work to fight unconstitutional laws that would prohibit the uh, sale and display of comics throughout the, the states. And how, I mean, how... Is this a relatively common phenomenon for comic books to be to be challenged and and censored? Why why should why do you do this? Well, I think it's a relatively common phenomenon for media to be challenged and censored. And I think that comic books as an increasingly vital part of the media landscape, you know, certainly get their uh, their fair share of those challenges. Uh where we've seen a real evolution over the nearly 21 years that the fund's been around is that when the fund was established back in the 80s there was a misperception that comic books were a strictly juvenile medium and as i'm sure many of your your listeners will know comics especially over the last 40 years have really gone on to address a broad variety of intellectual and social concerns right, but I'd, I'd actually it, like to to talk about that a little bit too um because I mean, I, I was a comic book fan as an adult. I never read comic books as a child, and I uh, I became a young adult in the uh, late 90s when there were so many uh, good comics out there for adults. I wonder if, if you could just tell, I mean, I could talk about that as well, but let's let's talk a little bit about what kind of comic books are out there for um, for everybody, not just for kids. Well, I think that, um, especially in recent years, you're really seeing that uh, the world at large is really responding to comic books, or as they're more commonly accessed now, graphic novels, that tend to address just a, a, a wide variety of topics that will range from the historical to social commentary to, you know, the good old-fashioned um, adventure stuff that uh, that the form started with. But 
really in the late 60s, like so much of America that, that underwent profound changes, the comic book world was profoundly changed by the rise of underground comics, and that was brought about by people like R. Crumb, Art Spiegelman, and a variety of others who set their pen to paper to satirize what was happening in the general culture and to raise awareness about what was going on in in their parts of the changing world and over the um the 30 or 40 years since that whole movement commenced we've seen the generations following those examples and really setting about to create works that speak to everybody Right, and there's so much literature right now, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, I, I call it literature because I think it is. I know that um, uh, I would like to mention Dan Close's work and, uh, let's see, Adrian Tomine, uh, who are local. Um, also, uh, Joe Sacco, if people aren't familiar, is a comic book journalist. He travels to the Middle East and, and draws comics about... Uh, I mean, nonfiction reporting of what goes on. Um, but what kind of comics generally, uh, Charles, Charles Brownstein of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, what kind of comics are, are challenged? Which, which ones are being censored these days? Well, a lot, of, a lot of the work that gets challenged in any media is work that either frankly addresses sexual experience or work that um, that contains a certain amount of violence and comics is certainly no different than that from that there's really two areas of challenge that occur there's the kind of citizen challenge that happens uh, frequently on a library level where a book will be in the collection and a member of the community may object to its presence in the collection and for those sorts of challenges, that's a matter of education and awareness building, collecting resources for libraries to use in, in defending the book and keeping the book in their collection. And in those cases, we've seen books like Mouse or The Tale of One Bad Rat or uh, Dan Klaus, you mentioned. Uh, we've seen some challenges to his work, uh, specifically like A Velvet Glove Casts an Iron. And uh, we'll, we'll, create, we'll put together the resources to help the libraries defend that. Now, that's the easy level of challenge because nobody's life is at stake. And I don't mean to minimize the, um, the concern that, that any kind of intellectual chill you know, can, can occur there. But the other level of challenge and, and the work that is much more vital and much more, um, much more pressing in its urgency is the work that the fund does to actually keep people from going to jail for selling comic books. Right, and we, we um, definitely want to talk a lot about the case that, that the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is currently working on where you're defending a comic book store. He's the owner, correct? That's, that's right. Um, actually, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump into that. Go right ahead. On Sunday, we're actually all departing for Rome, Georgia, to defend a case involving a retailer named Gordon Lee. And Gordon's the proprietor of a shop called Legends in Rome, Georgia. And right now, he's facing up to two years in prison and $2,000 in fines on two counts of distributing harmful to minors materials. And these two counts arise from a Halloween 2004 incident where a sample comic book containing an excerpt from the Nick Bertozzi graphic novel, The Salon, 
was accidentally distributed on Halloween to a minor. And this was one comic book in a stack of about 3,000 that were given away. It was literally the needle in the haystack. But the material at hand, the salon, is about the birth of Cubism in the Paris art scene of the first decade of the 20th century. The material at issue contains a scene where Georges Braque goes to meet Picasso for the first time in his studio, and Picasso is painting in the nude. There's no sex involved, there's no sexual context, and... Picasso frequently did paint in the nude. It was actually, you know, well-researched, and, you know, he was a character. And the artist put this in and put this, put this out there to create a portrait of a person that is just completely consumed by his art and completely living within it. And it never occurred to, to him that, you know, this, this may be... Um, this may be something objectionable. So at any rate, the comic was accidentally distributed, and Lee found himself facing two felony counts and five misdemeanor counts over what was an accident that should have been resolved with a call from the, his, the kid's parents saying, hey, what is this? And, you know, an apology. And instead, the Rome prosecutors got involved, overcharged him, and have been pursuing this case for almost three years now. Uh, it's taken a, a really strange, circuitous path, too, because as the case began, we went through the various motions hearings and went to court. The judge threw out the felonies as they were unconstitutional anyway. Wh which felony was he charged with? He was charged with a felony count called um, distribution of unsolicited nudity slash sexual conduct. And is, was that, is that specific to the state of Georgia? It is, and it's it's a law that's probably unconstitutional. Um, because the felonies were thrown out at the motions level, that was never that the constitutionality of the law was never put to the test, which is a shame. The law says that no person in the state of Georgia can give any other person, and this is irrespective of age, any unsolicited material that contains mere nudity. And so the way this law was being applied, it meant that if you and I are neighbors and you're handing off an issue of the New Yorker to me and it contains photography, let's say, of nude protesters, as the issue of the New Yorker with Richard Avedon's last photo spread did, you could be facing up to, I believe it was five years in prison for handing that off to me. I mean, it's a ludicrous law, and it would have been nice to have been able to test it and get it killed, but that didn't happen. Those counts were thrown out. Uh, the five misdemeanor counts, three of the counts were alleging that Lee handed off this comic to John Doe's, which means that they were overcharging, they were padding the case in case they could find anybody else that got this comic. And so it got whittled down to the two charges that we're seeing now, and we proceeded to trial. And on the eve of the date that we were supposed to go to trial, which was in 2005, the prosecutors called our attorneys up and said, we have to throw this case out because we got our facts wrong. And our attorney says, well, you know, what do you mean? Well, we originally thought it was given to one kid. We've, we discovered it was given to a different kid. And everything that we've said for the last 18 months turns out to be untrue. How does that happen? Um, so it, it proceeded from that point to having to literally go back to start on the case and work all the way back up to the trial level, which is finally going to happen next week. Wow, so three-plus years of 
of legal wrangling, this must be very expensive. It is. The case to date has cost $80,000 in legal bills. We're anticipating next week's trial to cost another twenty on top of that. And it's it's really unfortunate on a number of levels. Um, the first level is that this is something that should have been settled with intelligence adults confronting each other and saying, you know, geez, I'm sorry this, this occurred. This was a mistake. This was not a an act that was carried out with knowledge and willfully. And um, so that, that was, you know, the first part that's unfortunate. And the second part is that the prosecution, you know, has been persistent in, in you know, basically persecuting this fellow and couldn't even get their facts straight in the first place. If the CBLDF weren't here to facilitate finding counsel and to facilitate paying the legal bills, you would have been looking at this guy having to either personally bankrupt himself or cop to a plea for something that, you know, for a crime that he didn't commit because the, the sheer cost and the sheer psychological strain of going to court can completely destroy somebody's life. Right, and Chris Brownstein of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, why... Why is it important to fight this then if it would have been so much cheaper and quicker for the man who owned the comic book store who accidentally distributed a picture of a drawing of Pablo Picasso in the nude uh, to a kid, allegedly? Why is it important to fight? <coughs> Excuse me. It's important to fight for two critical reasons. Number one, he's not guilty of the the crimes that he's accused of and you can read a much fuller summary at our website cbldf.org org he's you shouldn't cop a plea and you shouldn't say that you committed a crime that you didn't do so so that's thing one but thing two is that the law is a web of precedent and were Mr. Lee to find himself convicted or to cop a plea to distributing harmful to minors material over a drawing of a famous person in, in an unclothed state, then that makes everybody in Georgia, every retailer, much more vulnerable to similar prosecutions. It's not just the comic book that shows Picasso painting in the nude. It's the Egon Sheila art book that's at the Barnes & Noble or in a county library. It's the last picture show, which has an MPAA reading, uh, rating, I believe, of PG, but contains full frontal male and female nudity. These are works of art that have unquestioned merit and have stood the test of time, but with a conviction like this, if it were to become a conviction, it makes everybody vulnerable for disseminating that art. And so that website, again, is cbldf.org. That's the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Um, how this, this case has been going on for quite some time, but how common is a case like this in the history of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund? We've seen a general shift over the last decade away from prosecutors trying to make cases on distribution of obscene materials to distribution of harmful to minors materials. Um, the bar being that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment and is um, governed by the Supreme Court's Miller test. Harmful to minors materials is a bit of a newer avenue in law, and it basically states that the material is fails the Miller test as regards minors. And the laws vary from state to state. 
Most are constitutionally sound, but some are not. And so we will see cases pop up. Sometimes you'll go a year without one. Sometimes you'll get uh, three in a year over our 20-year history. But generally, they tend to erupt around election cycle years, which really isn't a great surprise. A lot of our casework has to do with local prosecutors or DAs or politicians looking to increase their standing in the community before an election. And comic book stores are generally sole proprietor operations that generally are underfunded and make easy targets. And it's interesting that in, that comic books uh, and you know, they contain pictures, and that's that's kind of why maybe they are more vulnerable to censorship than than a book. Sure, it's 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 more visceral. In a, in a book, you've got prose creating a picture that you need to construct in your mind. When you're dealing with comics, like an art book, like a photography book, you're entering the realm of the image that's provided for you. And so consequently, that's much easier to scrutinize, much easier to take out of context, and much easier to raise a ruckus about when somebody doesn't have all the facts and wants to make an example. And so Chris Brownstein, the executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, I think I want to shift from talking about Gordon Lee, the case that you guys are working on right now, and talk about the only other case that I'm familiar with. Is It's quite possibly the most notorious of all. It's the, Mike Diana. Is, is this a, a good thing to talk about now? Sure, that's fine. So, uh, Mike Diana is, is a really interesting and unfortunate case that happened in the 90s. Uh, Michael Diana was a cartoonist that was living in Florida in uh, the 80s and 90s, and he made mini-comics, which are just like zines, practically, that he, you know, photocopied and, and distributed through the mails and, and um, you know, sent around to friends. And, you know, these were fairly raucous and um, raucous underground comics that come out of the tradition that people in San Francisco, you know, innovated. You know, guys like S. Clay Wilson publishing houses like Last Gasp of San Francisco. And Diana was at first confused with a suspect in a murder case that was going on. And so he was drug in by the authorities and questioned. And when they realized they had the wrong guy, they they let him go, but then went, well, wait a minute, what are these comics that you're doing? And then brought him in on obscenity charges for drawing those comics. And, and I want to mention that these comics are... They basically look like um, a very creative and very troubled 13-year-old drew mm -hmm. them. There, there's lots of, uh, I don't want to violate an, uh, any FCC rules describing them, but there's lots of genitalia and uh, goofy, I mean, adolescent humor, but also uh, very violent adolescent humor. It, it, it's gross-out sex and violence through the prism of a kid that grew up in suburbia and hated it. And... Um you know, there, there's there's an awful lot of, of material like that, that that's out there in a variety of media. Except, you know, now you look at YouTube, and that's where it is. Not so much in the in the comics anymore. And he was brought up on on charges of of creating and and promoting obscenity. And this is a case that went from the lower lower court through the appeal stage. And he was convicted of actually creating obscene material. And the penalty that he faced included not being able to draw. He was actually told by the authorities that he would not be able to pick up a pencil and draw cartoons even for his own benefit and not for publication. 
and he was subject to spot inspections uh, by by the parole department. So that I mean that's that's totally ludicrous. And I mean, does the is the comic book legal defense fund able to change that? The man is not allowed to draw. Well, it was it was through the terms of his probation, which was I, I believe about two years. Um, the fund and and the attorneys that. Um, that were employed by the fund, and I, I believe the ACLU got involved at the end as well, were able to negotiate that his his uh, probation could be served out in New Jersey, which is where I believe he currently lives. I mean, he is back to drawing. His work is uh, being published from time to time, but it's an incredibly scary and chilling precedent that still sits on the Florida books. And so I know that you're a very busy man today, and I, I want to want to let you get to your next appointment so you can go down to Georgia to defend Gordon Lee. Are you leaving today? or uh, Leaving tomorrow, actually. And I mean, maybe we can use the rest of our time to talk about um, the bigger picture. Uh, I, I came across an article online of an interview with you in 2004 when George Bush was reelected president, um, mm-hmm. and you were concerned about the, the makeup of the Supreme Court at that time. Is are things as bad as you thought they might be now? Uh, to be entirely honest with you, I'm kind of shocked that we haven't seen more prosecution on uh, on obscenity issues on the federal level. Um, you know, in, in, in this recent time. Having said that, we are starting to see a trend that I started to get paranoid about back in '03. There's a law called the Protect Act, which, again, I believe was passed in 03. And half of the law was really good and created tools like the Amber Alert and tougher penalties against uh, sexual abuse and exploitation of children, things that were needed, things that have helped out. But the other half of the law was frightening and created categories of thought crime that would treat any drawings, any paintings, any representation that would lead the viewer to believe that minors are engaged in sexual behavior to be prosecuted as child pornography, whether or not actual minors were involved. So as Patrick Leahy, who was one of the uh, co-authors of the bill or co-sponsors of the bill, said when it was passed, is that these thought provisions go too far. They create thought crime. The movie Romeo and Juliet by Zeffirelli leads the viewer to believe that minors were engaged in sexual conduct, and that would be criminal under the act. I mean, that, that's something that was said by, by the senator right after it passed. And we're starting to see those cases come home to roost in the form of prosecutions where among the materials that have been convicted are people that possess um, anime or manga, which are Japanese animation or Japanese comic books, that are sexually explicit in nature and allegedly contain the depiction of minors engaged in sexual conduct. The thing that is is troubling about this and seeing these prosecutions is that it's not the government's job to create categories of thought crime. And while these ideas are abhorrent to most rational people, when they're just lines on paper, nobody's being hurt. And what the point that is being missed here is that child pornography is evidence of a crime and we oughtn't diminish that crime by prosecuting art and i'm starting to see some of those things happen so that that's going to be that's going to be a trend that i think will continue as we move ahead and then you know this this is more just my personal um 
paranoia going forward. But right now we've got an incredibly divided legislature, and historically the one thing that that all legislators can agree on is we got to protect our children from filth, and that may be indeed what we're looking at over the next year or two. Wow. And so, uh, Charles Brownstein, you're the executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. You're currently uh, up to your elbows in a case for the last four years defending a comic book store owner in, in Rome, Georgia. Um, what, what happens next with that case? How long do you expect it to go? Well, hopefully it'll be over by this time next week. Um, it's going to trial. Our calendar call is Monday. Uh, we're going to be going to trial sometime next week. And um, we've got good counsel. We've got good experts. We're hoping for a win. So I, I imagine that uh, you have to run now? Indeed I do, but oh. I thank you much for your time and interest. It was very interesting. Thank you for, for, for spending the time with us here. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. So... That was Charles Brownstein of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and I'm Eric Klein. This was Open Book. Uh, Charles Brownstein had to leave quickly, so we're ending the show a little bit early today. Thanks for listening. That website, again, if you want to learn more about the work of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, is C, as in comic, B, as in book, legal, <laughs> cbldf.org. That's the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund.org. Saturday, August 11th, 10 a.m. to noon, KPFA will have a town hall on violence. KPFA's T-Cash hosts a two-hour virtual town hall on violence in the wake of the Chauncey Bailey slaying, slaying, produced by Hard Knock Radio's Anita Johnson. That's tomorrow, Saturday, August 11th, 10 a.m. to noon. And Sunday, this Sunday host, Peter Lawfer, will take a look at the role of the press in society and the cultural and political power of the theater as a tool for change. Peter Lawfer welcomes Berkeley Daily Planet editor Becky O'Malley to the program. O'Malley wrote a critical editorial after Berkeley Mayor Tom Bates appeared on the Sunday program. In the second hour, Peter talks with John Wilk, instructor and director in the theater department of the City College in San Francisco. Sunday with Peter Lawfer, 9 a.m. Mas aumenta meu desejo e o meu padecer Não sei porquê Eu fico tão desesperado, tão acabrunhado Eu fico em tempo de morrer, meu bem Essa distância que nos separa Não há jeito que tem jeito de eu me acostumar Pois eu preciso de você Como a flor precisa do orvalho Como o peixe precisa de nadar Vem meu coração
coração reclama, veja que ele chama, é a voz da razão. Meu peito está queimando em chamas, se parece até a seca lá do meu sertão. Meu desejo e o meu padecer Não sei porquê Fico tão desesperado, tão acabrunhado Eu fico em tempo de morrer Dia que eu não lhe vejo Mas aumenta meu desejo e meu padecer Não sei porquê Fico tão desesperado, tão acabrunhado Eu fico em tempo de morrer Meu bem, essa distância que nos separa Não há jeito que tem jeito de eu me acostumar Pois eu preciso de você Como a flor precisa do orvalho Como o peixe precisa de nadar Yes, the funk. Have you ever wondered about the funk? And why this music is so hard? Think about the sacrifices that I made for you. Think about the kissing I done for you. What is funk? Where does it come from? Why does everybody want to rap on it, sample it, dance to it, make love to it, eat biscuits with it, take on the system with it? Who are these people? You want to know about the history of funk? Tune in. Fridays at 10 with Ricky Vincent and the crew on KPFA. And it's 3 p.m. here at KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno. Stay tuned next for Free Speech. It's 3.30.